Two million people went through TSA checkpoints at airports across the country last Friday and Saturday. The most since March does not bode well for what might happen as the holiday approaches. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn with Full House today. Chris Wernowski, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston. Happy Monday. Happy holiday week. I, d- I take it you will not be at airports later this week? No, no, no. staying put. Not unless you make us go there to cover something like I. (laughs) (laughs) That's a tough one, though, because if if Hopkins is mobbed, we want to cover it. But we also do not want our reporters to be in any danger of getting the coronavirus. So I don't know what do we do. Give them a pair of binoculars and have them stand in the garage. I don't know. I'd I'd be offended if you sent me to Hopkins if there wasn't a coronavirus. So I don't don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that wonderful airport. Okay, let's begin. Why did Ohio Public Utilities Chief Sam Randazzo say he resigned last week, a couple of days after the FBI raided his house and a day after First Energy put out a piece of paper that said there was a mysterious $4 million payment to a state official? Jane Cahoon, we've been speculating on what the future would be for Randazzo with the gigantic scandal about First Energy and HB6. You had to figure the Utilities Commission would get tied somehow. What happened? Well, what happened is, uh, interestingly, when he resigned Friday, he he cited both of those events that you just did in his letter, the FBI search of his house, which happened on Monday, and then his resignation was a day after this this SEC filing by First Energy saying there was a questionable $4 million payment to an entity associated with an unnamed person who subsequently was hired by the state to regulate utilities. So he he said that both of those things, uh, quote, will right or wrong fuel suspicions about and controversy over decisions I may render in my current capacity. And just to further quote his letter, I, I picked this quote. In present times, when you, good sir, are valiantly battling to save Ohioans from the surging attack of COVID-19, there is no room or time for me to be a distraction. So that was what he cited in the letter. And then he went on and um, some pretty great detail uh, going on to take credit um, for, you know, reforming a dysfunctional PUCO and adding transparency <laughs> and making it serve customers and the public interest better and bashing the Strickland, going bash, back to the Strickland administration and bashing them. And then, yeah, he, he went on quite a bit saying Ohio's pro-competitive legal framework which I greatly helped to get incorporated into Ohio law, is working for customers. Yeah, it's working really, really well. We all know that now. You know, there's a a couple of things. One, when the $4 million payment thing came out, we didn't know, we still don't know that it was Rondazzo, but him putting that in the letter made made life a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of surprised to see that. He also kind of went out of his way to note that he had disclosed his prior business relationships before he was vetted for this PUCO chair chairmanship. And, you know, just to, for people who don't know, he was a longtime utility lawyer and consultant. He did work for First Energy Solutions, which was the First Energy subsidiary that owned the nuclear plants that are uh, going to benefit from this corrupt bailout that the legislature passed. 
Which is why he should have never been appointed to the head of the Utilities Commission. I mean, that seems like a conflict a mile long. But Mike DeWine has called him a good man and said, I have no indication that he's under investigation, even after the feds raided his house and cleared away his stuff. Yeah, and he repeated that after his resignation. He said he has done very, very good work as chair. (laughs) What I'm really wondering is, like, do you guys think he resigned, you know, to, to save DeWine the trouble of pushing him out? Or do you think maybe DeWine's folks behind the scene send a message that, hey, buddy, it's time to to get out? I don't know. I, was just I don't, I don't know. But what but what throws me is both with DeWine and him saying rightly or wrongly, this will fuel suspicion. When the feds raid your house, it rightly fuels suspicion. That's not something they do when they think you're behaving and following the law. The suspicion is for real. There's no right or wrong about it. I'm, I'm surprised it took a second step for him to go. I mean, once the feds come to your door show you the search warrant and start carting away your stuff. You should go because it's compromising everything that happens. But the governor stood behind him. I don't know if the governor would have pushed him out. He's been pretty steadfast. I mean, he called him a good man. Yes, he did. But I, I don't know. I'm just sort of wondering what, uh, what happened behind the scenes. That's all. What, what, when do you stop being good man? Is, is Larry Householder still a good man? I mean, he's under <laughs> indictment for racketeering and orchestrating a 60 million scheme. Could you, would you still call him a good man or would you call him, you know, a corrupt public official who, who used his position to stick it to the people of Ohio? I, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. When well, can I, can I ask, and, and, and this is just, I don't know if there's any answer to this question, but I mean, maybe this illustrates that Mike DeWine doesn't, I mean, they're, they're doing a very good job of not letting people know what this investigation is about that, that like Mike DeWine had to take time to go and, and read and understand what the charges might be, what the, what the investigation, you know, I'm, I'm giving him an out here and, and saying like, maybe he, his initial comment was, Oh, he's a good man. We'll, we'll let the investigation, whatever. And then after some additional consideration, they said, maybe you should go. He said, he said under grilling, mm-hmm. I have no indication he's under investigation and he's a former prosecutor. And that is, that's a weird thing to say, especially, you know, when the FBI has gone to somebody's house, that's a pretty good <laughs> indication that you're under investigation is that the FBI is that on your front porch. But, you know, I, I don't know. It just, it's, it, it seems like DeWine doesn't know any, I mean, it doesn't seem like he has any inside information about this, this investigation, which means he's, you know, this is this is a place where, you know, he's not a prosecutor and he's not on the inside and he can't see, you know, the evidence and, and, and you know, what they're using to make these allegations against people. So, you know, he's he's not in there. He's on the outside and he's sort of getting the information is not as we get it, I'm assuming. But, you know, per, you know, but. OK. All right. All right. All right. All right. You're Mike DeWine. You're the mm-hmm. governor. And your your choice for the utilities commission has his house raided. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? What what's the no brainer move there? Uh, well, you go on television and call him a great man. You know? <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right, you're listening to this week in the CLE. What are three big name Cleveland institutions closing down because of the fall coronavirus surge? And just how big has that surge been in Northeast Ohio these last seven weeks? Laura Johnson, we got some bad news about these institutions over the weekend, but we also got Rich Exner's deep dive into the numbers that shows a staggering change in coronavirus. 
Well, I guess it depends what you take as bad news. Um, I think the fact that some of these have stepped up and closed with the stay-at-home advisory, it shows that they're taking the health of their patrons seriously. But the Rock Hall, the Cleveland Museum of Art, the Cleveland History Center are among some of the big cultural institutions that are closing their doors until at least mid-December during the stay-at-home advisory, which is voluntary. Uh, They're planning to offer a lot of programs online and in social media, but While this is raging, they cannot welcome in thousands of guests over the holidays. They're indoor closed spaces. Most of these spots reopened at the end of June or early July during the pandemic at limited capacity. So they've already, you know, been shut down once. Outdoor events like Glow at the Cleveland Botanical Garden, the Lantern Festival at Hale Farm, um, the Winter Wildlife at the Zoo, those are still a go. But these numbers are astounding, as Rich Exner always does with his his analysis of the numbers, uh, shows that we had about 83 new cases a day on October 1st. Um, when the fall surge kind of began in these seven counties of Northeast Ohio. By this past Thursday, we had grown up to more than 1,100 a day. That means cases across the region are up 1,200%. And he, and he breaks down doctor's visits, ICU, all sorts of things. But it just, that is a staggering amount. Yeah, and as as always happens, when you give people a bunch of numbers, they want more. So I was getting emails over the weekend, why don't you have this number, why don't you have this number? And it's like, are you guys paying attention? The state is really, really bad about providing data. Rich is probably providing more data than anybody out there. And it was, putting that all together into perspective was a shock. The frightening thing is, is after everybody gets together for Thanksgiving, how much it might go up. On the on the art museum and the rock hall, there has been word that their attendance was not what they thought it might be when they reopened because people are afraid of getting the coronavirus. They weren't showing up in big numbers. So maybe it's also a money-saving move that they don't open if they don't have the revenue coming in. I mean, the, the art museum's free, but without their patrons coming, they're probably not getting as much in the way of donations as they were. Donations at their in their cafes. And, you know, usually in a regular year, they would have a couple of big name exhibits where you would have to pay extra money to go in and they're not doing any of that. So, but yeah, one, one big number that was really astounding because it's hard to think in percentages sometimes, but we had about 50.3 cases per hundred thousand people in October uh, at the beginning. And now we're at 645 per hundred thousand. So that is just an incredible, just jump. And yet every day I get notes from people that say this is all (laughs) made up nonsense. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What does the city of Cleveland say about all the key people who have quit the city health department at the height of the worst pandemic in a century? Chris Ranowski, this was a little bit scary. The health department is one of the key ways you deal with a pandemic, and they're losing all their epidemiologists. Yeah, not a not a good time to lose four out of your seven epidemiologists just as coronavirus inf- infections are starting to spike in the city and across the state. Mayor Frank Jackson and Health Director Brian Kimball disclosed this, a series of staff problems in an interview with us uh, last week, um, but said that they feel like they're they're sort of starting to get a handle on things. Um, but the the department is like currently adding some temporary workers. Uh, five have already started. Five more support workers and three nurses will be on board soon. But uh, they're being a little cagey about what prompted the departures. But the timing sort of corresponds with an internal investigation into employee complaints at the department and a staff shakeup that Jackson announced back in September. 
Um, the in-house investigation that was launched in July focused on employee morale and culture, uh, vacancy, hiring, and attrition, the loss of $1.5 million in state aid for HIV and AIDS programming for not meeting with state requirements, and an equal opportunity employee complaint filed by a Colombian-born employee. Investigators interviewed employees to ensure that they were collecting information from a broad swath of workers and not just people making complaints. And um, they found several areas of concerning uh, that were concerning and, and indicating negligence, uh, which which they said must immediately be addressed. So it doesn't sound like good things were going on there. Director Merle Gordon was reassigned to a position outside the department. Disciplinary investigations were started against two employees and the EEO complaint was reopened and the department uh, was moved under Tracy Martin Thompson, Jackson's chief of the Office of Prevention, Intervention and Opportunities for Youth and Young Adults. So All right. Good. A lot okay. But that, that that investigation goes back a month or two. I mean, we've, mm-hmm. we've gone into that pretty deeply. The new mm-hmm. thing is people are quitting left and right. So right. are are they doing anything to to fix it? I mean, is there panic at City Hall like, uh-oh, we can't handle this? I mean, remember last week we hit a point where they couldn't give us numbers because they were so overwhelmed. Is this why they're overwhelmed? Right. Um so it says that they did they did have a replacement to fill one of the four position uh, that has been identified and, and should be working within two weeks. And the city is reviewing applications for the other three slots. Um, and then they have added a bunch of uh, temporary workers in the meantime. So this is, you know, this, I mean, you talk about bad timing. This is probably the worst timing you could have. So it's, it, it remains to be seen whether they will get people in there who, you know, can do the job, but you know, this is, I mean, I hate to say this, but this is Cleveland. And, and, and I know that it's, it's easy to have that chip on your shoulder, but it's, it's, it seems pretty hard to keep really good people in these positions for, for very long, because it, it, it seems there, there's a lot of frustration within these departments. I don't know. It's a conversation for another day, but this is yet another reason why we ought to take a new look at the whole way we deliver public health and and, and raise the question of should every locality have a board or should there be a more unified approach? Mm-hmm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the likelihood that Mike DeWine will face a primary challenge when he runs for re-election for Ohio governor in 2022? Jane Kuhn, we did learn last week for the first time that he is going to run again because he said in response to something the president tweeted that he's running. Um, <laughs> usually there's an announcement like that. It was like, oh, so he's running. But what's the likelihood he's going to face a primary challenge, which is unusual for an incumbent Republican in Ohio? Well, gosh, we really don't know, but isn't it fun to speculate about it? I mean, <laughs> the, the uh, and the, the speculation really kind of took off since President Trump last week took a jab at DeWine on on Twitter after DeWine had the temerity to suggest that Joe Biden was, you know, Joe Biden won the presidential election. So his Trump's tweet predicted that the 2022 governor's race in Ohio would be quote unquote, hotly contested. Now, whether or not Trump was just blowing off steam, it's it's led to a lot of buzz about 2022. So Andrew Tobias looked at this. He kind of checked out the landscape to see what might be developing. You know, we know DeWine's been a popular governor, but we also know there's been an increasing backlash, uh, Republican backlash against his coronavirus policies, you know, including from his GOP colleagues in the legislature who who keep trying to curb his his power. So against that backdrop, we have people like 
former Congressman Jim Renacy and current Congressman Jim Jordan joining uh, this Twitter bashing of DeWine, you know, belittling his latest anti-coronavirus measures like like the curfew and the rules for wedding receptions. And so that's all led to speculation that they might be gearing up to challenge him in 2022. And in fact, um, Republican sources told Andrew that Jordan is actually considering it, although some of them said he's not likely to do it because he likes being in Congress where he's built this national profile as the ultra conservative, fierce defender of Trump. And, you know, some people think he's got dreams of a Republican takeover of the House and eventually becoming speaker. So perhaps he's just having some fun, you know, putting his name out there for speculation. I don't know. Or but, you know, supposedly he's at least considering it. And then uh, Renacy seems more likely to be gearing up for a campaign. He's he's been criticizing DeWine ever since he became governor, you know, bashing him on the gas tax increase and the and Ohio's economy and uh, Renacy is also somebody who's aligned himself with with Trump. So, um, you, you know, it, it seems like he's he's really planning something now, whether any of this would be successful. I mean, I think one of DeWine's allies said, you know, hey, if anybody comes out to challenge him, it's only going to be like a second tier person. It's not going to be. Oh, yeah. man, I think that's crazy thinking. I mean, in, 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 look, in a Republican primary in Ohio, wacko wins. And so the, fir- <laughs> the farther to the fringe you are, the more I think you can you can win the primary. I mean, if Jim Jordan ran, I think Democrats would take Republican ballots just to stop him from getting in there. Although, Jane, you've argued they would want him in there because it would give him a better chance of winning, although I'm not quite so sure. I just am struck, though. At, at how things have turned, where you have a Republican governor, a longtime conservative, getting belittled, belittled by a Republican congressman in the same state. I mean, that would have yeah. seemed unthinkable. I mean, Jordan called it a joke, like his rules on the wedding receptions, like, well, you can't uh, drink while standing up, but you can drink while sitting down. It's just a joke. I mean, if you think back to the Voinovich years and the Taft years, you just would never have seen that. And yet here, I mean, he's getting belittled by members of his party and they're they're belittling him because he's not conservative enough boggles the mind. Chris Ranowski, you saw something over the weekend where a Trump administration member from Shaker Heights that few people have ever heard of is being offered up as a possible candidate. Right. A guy by the name of Max Miller, who I honestly like I had never heard that name before. And maybe that that makes me not a political insider. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, uh, a story that sort of uh, from Politico that did touch on on this issue pointed out that that there is a, a Trump loyalist in Shaker Heights who uh, apparently is part of this administration and in, in this effort. And, and so um, there was some speculation that he might also be somebody who throws his hat in the ring. So I don't know. It'll be interesting. It, you know, it'll it'll. It, it, I, I mean, do do you seriously think that DeWine has lost enough popularity that he would he would be vulnerable? I mean, it's it's that's the thing. Through all this, he still maintained a pretty significant level of popularity throughout the state. So. Yeah, but I think a lot of that popularity comes from Democrats. I don't know. There were, but once you get into Republican primaries, you just don't you don't know what's going to happen because the, 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 we have such conservative areas of the state. They might want. Jim Jordan, they might want Jim Renee. Well, I mean, Renee also, really stand for anything. It. They're going to run with the confidence that 
that primary is going to decide who the governor is. I mean, it's sort of like how, you know, all of the Democrats that were running in the pri- presidential primary were like, well, whoever wins this is going to be the president. And, and so Although Jane, Jane, Jane will push back on this because Jane thought that if, if Jordan was the Republican candidate, it might help a Democrat win. You want to talk a little bit about that, Jane? Well, I'm I'm just old, so I was thinking back to I think it was, you know, two thousand and six when Ken Blackwell was running in the Republican primary for governor against Jim Petro, you know, regarded as a moderate and and regarded as somebody who could be successful in winning the general election. But in the primary, Blackwell won because he was much farther to the right. And um and then he got trounced by Ted Strickland. So I would, you know, things have changed. And, and that's one thing I was going to say just overall about the situation we're talking about is that a lot can happen in two years. So we're sitting here talking about this now, but, but I, I, I the just, landscape could change. I, I just, I'm, I'm kind of in the camp that I, I can't see Jim Jordan relinquishing the, the stature and power that he has created for himself in Congress. Yeah. You know, I, I, think you know, that's I mean, you got to think point. about it. Like he's, he's in a, He's in a really easy district for him to win. He he now that changes. Yeah, in two years. that will change in twenty twenty three. A new district, but but also you know, and I and I, I mean not to bash anybody, but I mean he he largely, you know, he doesn't have a lot of like local news scrutiny. You know what I mean? And if he if he runs for governor, then he has you know, every, every news organization in the state is going to be paying attention to him. You know, you have all the Ohio state stuff that's going to come back up. And, and it's like, you know, I, I don't know if he would lead the safety of, of that district and, and of, of the position that he has, which I think he'll, even when they redraw the districts, I still think he would do fine. I, I, it doesn't seem like he would leave that spot. It gets back to what Jane said. It's fun to speculate. Right. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. With money for the arts dwindling from the Cuyahoga County cigarette tax, what is the proposal to restore the money that has been so important to Cleveland's arts community? Laura Johnston, the culture tax that we put in on cigarettes some years back has really created a a movement in Cuyahoga County. We're unlike most places in the country. It shows we support our arts. But because they put the tax on cigarettes and fewer and fewer people smoke, the money keeps dropping. So what are they trying to do to keep that revenue flowing? So they want a wider base to draw from. And yeah, like you said, we last reapproved this uh, renewal in 2015. So it runs through its 10 years till 2025. But it's a 30 cent pack, uh, 30 cent a pack tax, and it keeps declining. So an alliance of four countywide arts organizations are working together to draft this proposed state legislation that county voters could replace the tax on cigarettes with an 8% tax on the wholesale price of all tobacco products, including vaping devices, which are kind of a growing part of that segment. This is a collaboration between for-profit and non-profit arts organizations and venues. And what it would do is bring back the revenues back to the same level as they were in 2007, which was the first year this levy took effect. They need state legislation to be able to do it, and they haven't found a sponsor yet. But they're hoping that they can can reach out wider because it's not just Cuyahoga County. One part of this proposal would allow all Ohio counties with populations greater than 200,000 to levy taxes on tobacco products. And also another idea would be to exchange the state's $1.25 excise tax on a pack of cigarettes for a 35% tax on the wholesale price. And that would mean more money for the state. 
Well, and it adjusts with inflation, which it doesn't do now. It'll be interesting to see if the legislature favors that and how much money might be put into the legislature to stop it by the industry itself. As we do know from the $60 million bribery scandal down there, those guys are welcoming to the money. Well, I just want to say with the coronavirus and the fact that places like Playhouse Square have been shuttered since March, like you think this has more importance now than you would have even thought last year. Yeah. And it, it, the, the, as we pointed out, the arts industry is hurting lots of layoffs and, and the coronavirus isn't letting up. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many children witnessed the immediate aftermath of a police gunshot killing of a teenager earlier this month? And how traumatized are they? Chris Warnowski, the, the news of the shooting uh, immediately raised alerts. Are we going to end up with violence and protests? It's yet another case of a police officer killing a black teenager. Uh, it turns out, though, we sent a reporter out and a whole lot of children saw what was going on after the shooting. Right. So Olivia Mitchell went out to the King Kennedy North Apartments and spoke to a group of children, uh, some teenagers, uh, and one friend of Arthur Keith, who was shot back on November 13th and killed during an incident involving a CMHA public housing police officer. And and I mean, their stories are, are pretty horrific. I mean, these kids witnessed a shooting and, and, you know, two of them said that they're having recurring nightmares. One girl actually saw the shooting. The other, the other saw the guy, the Keith running away and collapse just moments after it had happened. And, and they witnessed the aftermath of it. They saw, they, they saw police giving him CPR. And, 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 you know, they basically watched this, this guy that they knew, somebody who was kind of a fixture in the neighborhood, somebody that some of these kids are involved with the Boys and Girls Club. And even the director of the Boys and Girls Club, you know, knew this kid who was killed and, you know, is just outraged by it. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a shooting that we still don't have a lot of answers about. Um, and, and hopefully police, uh, Cleveland police will, will give us some more answers about it this week. And Leila Tassi, our columnist, has a moving piece that I think is publishing today, if it's not published already, uh, in dealing with some of the adults that are trying to work with these kids. This is a summer of, the, or this year has been the highest for homicides that we've seen in 30 mm-hmm. plus years. And it's been a year of, of unrest about police killing largely black people. And this all happens in that these guys, the, the people at the Boys and Girls Club are trying to to help the children get through it. So it's pretty good stuff. Look for her piece later today. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much money being paid out by Ohio Medicaid might have been given out in error? Jane Cahoon, we talk about a lot of state officials, but this year we really have not talked about Keith Faber, the auditor. He came up with a piece of information late last week that's a little bit scary. Yeah, uh, his audit shows that, uh, well, well, first of all, we're talking about a dysfunctional state computer system. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> anyway, his, his, uh, his audit showed that uh, the Medicaid program might have paid out hundreds of millions of dollars to providers last year on claims for ineligible patients because of glitches with this computerized enrollment system. What he did was looked at 27 counties and they found 16 out of 324 Medicaid customers, or 4.9%, shouldn't have been eligible to enroll in the program. And that and that translated only to about $39,000 in improper payments. But 
if you extrapolate that number to the overall enrollment numbers, it would translate to as much as $455 million. So there you have it. It's the, the caseworkers, I guess, also report frustrations with this, with this system, uh, you know, saying it's complicated and inefficient and frustrating, expensive and broken. So, so what's next? What do they do to fix it? Well, the Medicaid folks know that this is a problem. In in January, the Medicaid director, Maureen Corcoran, wrote a memo to Governor Mike DeWine saying there were nearly 1,100 defects just on the healthcare portion of this system. It's called the Ohio Benefits uh, system, and it cost $1.2 billion to develop this system. But she said, you know, there were all these flaws in it, and they're aware of the problems and they're trying to fix them, basically, is, is what they said. Well, we know from the unemployment system that when Mike DeWine and John Houston learned that a computer system screwed up, they get right on it and fix it. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Right, good discussion. Always fun on a Monday. There's a ton of news to catch up with from the end of the last week. Things are going to slow down, you think, the next couple of days? Well, not now that you jinxed it. Yeah. We haven't had a slow break. Maybe Wednesday. Maybe Wednesday will be slow. Yeah. Although a lot of sleazy politicians will count on us not paying as close attention and break news. Man, the county under Armin Budish, they drop stuff right on the eve of weekends and holidays all the time that makes them look bad. So we always have to have somebody on the alert so that they don't get away with it. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll return tomorrow with another episode.